So now the Dharma talk really starts. Um, so the Dharma is everywhere. And um, I thought, uh, just sitting here, I thought maybe we'd start with uh, doing this uh, part of the chant we did last night. Can you hear me okay now? So uh, the first half, the homage to the Buddha, or the homage too loud or echoing? What? Ringing? Yes. Feedback. Feedback? There's the Dharma of feedback is happening. <laughs> so, um, so how's that? Is that better now? Can you hear me okay and there's no feedback? And no? Still a problem? It's not a problem. So um, chant together the homage to the Buddha, or to awakening if you prefer. And we'll do the same way we did it last night. I'll do one word and you can repeat after me. Namo. and the last day of the retreat. And so, um, a lot happens on retreat, even in short retreats. Uh, much more happens uh, sometimes than we realize at the time. Certainly, I think that uh, some of us have come here to de-stress or just to cool out from busy life. And maybe to some degree that's happened a little bit and that's been nice. But one of the important things that happens on any retreat, especially at the beginning, um, is uh, we become aware of the momentum of our life. There's often a tremendous amount of momentum of thoughts, of preoccupations, concerns, of tensions, and just our life is kind of rushing in certain ways. And coming to a retreat isn't partly kind of coming to a stop with all that, but in stopping, all the momentum catches up to us. Retreats are a chance for our life to catch up to us. And so we get to see ourselves, we get to see the momentum. And in Buddhism, that's considered to be extremely valuable, to become aware um, of the momentum of our life, what runs our life, what's directing it and all that. 
And though it isn't always easy to see that. And some of you kind of come here and hope to relax, and what you saw was the momentum. And maybe some of it was uncomfortable. It's taught in Buddhism that no moment of mindfulness is ever wasted. That uh, whatever you see, whatever you become aware of, is uh, for your benefit and for the benefits of everyone. And, uh, and if you become aware of your momentum that you're often not so well aware of, uh, the more you become aware of it, the better off you are, actually, even when it's unpleasant. Um, so I think that in, this, in one day like this, I think you'll see a certain amount of your momentum just shows up here. It's, it's kind of like a checking in to stop and be quiet for a couple of days like this. It's a kind of a truth, a truth moment, a truth saying, a truth discovery, uh, discovering what is true about yourself that's often very difficult when our life is busy. So we discover ourselves, or we, a lot of us know some parts of ourselves even before coming. And the motivation to practice, part of that motivation to practice, part of what to, uh, inspires us to practice, is a desire to change ourselves, is a desire to, for change. And uh, I don't think there's practice without some intention of change, wanting change. And there are some uh, philosophies or teachings of Buddhism where they say that the point of practice is not to change anything, but simply to wake up and be present for what is here. But even there, there's a subtle desire for change to go from not seeing that to seeing it, or not accepting what's here to just accepting what's here. Um, so there's usually a change from one way of being to another that um, is part and parcel of what practice is. Um, and the way we teach often here is a lot, it's a lot about acceptance of what's true, what's here and being kind and generous to ourselves and compassionate and uh, gracious about what's actually here, to be friends with what's here and not to be in opposition to it or struggling with it. But, you know, for many of us, we're in so much struggle with ourselves generally that it's a big change to go from struggle to just acceptance of things as they are. Um, uh, not, you know, to go, to go to a place where acceptance, where we don't want to change anything. To get to there is, involves some change. So change is an important part of the practice, um, wanting to change. What's important in looking at changing ourselves is what we bring with the, that desire, what, the way in which we try to change ourselves, um, the relationship we have to wanting to change ourselves, a change situation. Um, there, there are many different ways in which we can be engaged in the process of change. And two people in the same, doing the same activity of mindfulness and waking up or doing loving-kindness can actually bring very different motivations or very different kind of uh, stra- uh, attitudes towards uh, the very same practice. And some of the attitudes can just simply reinforce our suffering in a st- in sense of struggle, and some can uh, make a life a lot easier. And what I, what I want to um, talk about a little bit tonight is how to make the change, make the movement of change, make the movement of practice itself uh, be something which um, um, is in accord with the Dharma. There's an expression in Buddhism to be in accord with the Dharma. Um, and Dharma, if you prefer, uh, can be another word for truth, to be in accord with the truth. Another translation of Dharma is nature to be in accord with nature. How can we go about changing ourselves and being in accord with nature? And can we recognize when we're trying to change ourselves and we're struggling against nature, being um, 
uh, not in accord with nature, not in accord with truth, with the Dharma. And to begin to differentiate, to begin to kind of look a little bit at the attitude and the way which you're trying to do change is very, very important and lends itself to a lot more ease in the practice. I know from my own experience that I've practiced sometimes with great struggle, um, completely unnecessarily, um, because I thought that I had to um, um, whip myself into shape, or I, you know, I thought I wasn't good enough and I had to do something in order to, you know, I had to really huff and puff, or I had to get rid of some part of myself, and, uh, I, or I wasn't supposed to accept part of myself in order to practice. And, all these attitudes are attitudes that don't accord with what is true. A simple example uh, that went on for a long time was um, my relationship to uh, being sleepy on retreats. I thought there was something fundamentally, deeply flawed about me as a person because I would get sleepy on a retreat. Now, I would get, I would get up sometimes 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning to practice. And by 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, I was getting kind of tired. And it took me a long time to realize that it's kind of normal to get tired by that time. You know, I thought three or four, five o'clock came along and I thought, what's wrong with me? You know, this terrible person I am, I'm getting sleepy and, and I would steal myself and kind of try everything I could to try to attack and fight that sleepiness. Because I'm, sometimes I'm kind of slow. And finally I realized that uh, you're supposed to be sleepy after, you know, that many hours of you know, being awake and getting up that early in the morning and, and um, getting five hours of sleep at night. And so, so then I became much more compassionate and accepting of myself. This is what nature is. This is what the truth is. And what I learned was that rather than fighting against what was happening, what was important was, in a sense, working with it, going along with it, by bringing mindfulness to it, by bringing acceptance to it, and, um, and just continuing with the best effort I could in the midst of what was maybe a difficult time when I was sleeping, it was difficult to do the practice. So I learned how slowly, painfully, not to be struggling against my sleepiness, but rather learned how to be in a, have, a pra- have the practice go along in accord with it, to include it in kind of maybe like the Aikido of practice or the Judo of practice, to kind of learn how to recognize what is true and what is actually here, and learn how to let the practice be moving into what is true, rather than uh, having the practice be um, uh, uh, saying, well, you know, this is true enough perhaps, but it's not the right truth, and another truth is better. Uh, me being alert and perfect and, you know, the stellar meditator, that's, you know, that's the truth I prefer. So that, that's what should be, and that's what's going to be. And, you know, and then, I, then I suffer. I suffered a lot. And there's many ways, many attitudes that we bring to change that are painful, um, uh, sometimes there's punitive approaches or approaches of guilt and shame that motivate them or uh, approaches of ambition or egotism, of pride. Imposing our, our ego, our small sense of egotistical self and saying, you know, the world has to accord to my particular egotistical idea of who I am and what I need um, uh, is to kind of impose, not, is, not to, is to impose something on nature, on the truth. Because our small ego is a kind of a fiction, or small egotistical sense, is a kind of a fiction, a story we create about ourselves, that we're not good enough, or we're better than everyone else, or this is how I want people to see me. Um, 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 it's the way we represent ourselves, ideally, to the world around us. It's really remarkable that, you know, I have, I have, I'm, I'm very tuned into children now, young children, 
and um, young children, uh, as far as I can tell so far, um, you know, like my son is now one years old, it's kind of clear what's going on with him. Uh, you know, it's like if he's angry, he's angry, and if he's happy, he's happy. And, and I, don't, I don't doubt that, you know, he's, when he smiles, that, you know, it's not like a fake smile. He's not trying to fool me and say, everything's okay, Dad. You know, if things are not okay, you know, he lets me know very clearly. Um, he looks at me sometimes, and I can only imagine that he must think I'm idiom in. <laughs> All I'm doing is trying to change him. You know, and I'm the, you know, the, the universe's worst torturer, you know, like, you know, I feel terrible, you know, but I have to do this, you know, and he looks at me with, this, you know, these eyes, and how could you? And then, you know, we finally get him done, and, and then he seems to have, you know, well, that's done, and he gets up, and then he smiles, and he's really happy again, and what happened to EDM in? <laughs> I'm still holding on, you know, <laughs> you know, I'm kind of hanging on to my... So you kind of get what you get, you know, you get with the children, I think, the young children, you kind of get what they are, you kind of get how they're feeling. And one of the remarkable things with us as we start getting older is that we learn um, very cleverly, or not so cleverly, to present something different to others than what really is going on with us. We're feeling terrible, we're angry with someone, and we smile and say, oh, it's a nice day, I feel, how are you? You know, you're really, you know, you're down and out and depressed, and your whole life's falling apart, and how are you? Oh, just fine, thank you. You know, or, you know we, we kind of do fronts, we cover. We have this amazing ability to present, present kind of a front that's not really true. And some of us are really afraid to reveal parts of ourselves, even to ourselves, but certainly to others. And so we hold that back. We present the partial part of who we are, not the fullness of who we are. We're unwilling to kind of be exposed and vulnerable. So that ability to kind of split ourselves off and present a certain part of image of ourselves, of who we want to be, or protected self, this is really a small part of who we are, and partly what we can call the egotistical sense of self, or the, the concept and idea of self, which is not really in accord with nature, with truth. It's not really what our nature is or who we are. And so when we try to impose that in all kinds of ways, um, on who we are, force ourselves into that, or manipulate ourselves into that, or try to get other people to see, it that, see us that way, uh, then it's not really in accord with the, with the Dharma, with truth. And the same applies to our practice. If we're trying to, if we have some idea of how we're supposed to be the perfect meditator, um, and we have to be successful at a certain task, you know, we kind of impose our ego again, you know. Um, you know, I don't want to kind of be a fool doing this, and I better look, you know, the looking good, you know, the concern of looking good as a meditator. Uh, there are many ways in which we impose ideas of how we're supposed to be and what's supposed to happen. One of the most liberating aspects of Dharma practice is that um, is you realize nothing has to happen. It's, it's just really great. You realize nothing has to happen. And so some people might get a little bit depressed when they hear that, because, what do you mean nothing's supposed to happen? I'm miserable, you know. But, um, but nothing has to happen means, let's take what's true, let's take how things are right now, how I am, and make a lot of space for it. Let it be there. And then, miraculously, if you make lots of space for who you are, be really honest and be accord with what's true about yourself, that it's as if what's inside knows what to do and knows how to, how to un- unfold by itself. You know, our, our circulation, our blood circulation flows just fine. Our heart beats generally just fine. A tremendous amount of stuff goes on inside of us. 
uh, in our mind, in our body, in our physiology. Without our conscious will or intention or manipulation, 99.9999% or more of what it takes to keep us alive is outside of our choices and decisions. It's like zero point, the part of our life we're so preoccupied about, I'm not good enough, I'm terrible, I'm, you know, something has to change, I need to become a better person or whatever. It's like that part of ourselves is like point zero 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 one percent of what it takes to run a human being. You know, and we think it's like the most important thing in the universe. But it's like this point one zero, you know, point one. We're phenomenal being human beings. Our nature and who we are is just, you know, it's just precious stuff. And we're completely consumed by this point zero 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 one percent, you know, of, of, you know, what it takes to kind of get along. Um, I mean, I don't have a... Comp- I, if, if, if I had to learn about physiology and biochemistry in order to arrange to have those hormones and chemicals and pheromones and blood circulations to do their thing, um, it would be a hopeless task. But somehow nature, my nature, seems to know how to do, take care of things quite nicely. If you cut yourself, uh, you know, in, uh, with a knife, for example, a little bit, um, uh, mostly what we do is clean, clean the wound and put a Band-Aid over it. And, it'll, and in order to make the ideal conditions for, our, for nature to take care of itself, to unfold and create the healing. Um, and it's the same with uh, mindfulness. Um, we open up and try to be as honest and present for who we are, make space for who we are, to kind of create kind of a clean situation. And, and uh, you know, um, mindfulness is kind of like a Band-Aid. It kind of makes good conditions. And then uh, whatever has to happen, the, the, the process of nature, the process of unfolding, will happen beautifully on its own. So what is it to be in accord with nature? To let the practice be in accord with nature? Um, I'm aware a little bit that in, there's a metaphor or an analogy, I guess, of spiritual practice that exists in the West. I don't know, maybe it exists in the East also, but I hear it often enough um, that a spiritual path is like climbing a mountain. And some people who are very ecumenical say, you know, all, all different religious paths, they're all different paths going up the same mountain to the same top or whatever. You know, so the idea of a climbing a mountain. Um, there was a famous Christian book, right? There was Mount Analog? Mount Analog is all about, maybe that's where it comes from, climbing to the mountain. And this mythical mountain that a spiritual path is supposed to be, uh, my, my, at least my idea, kind of the naive idea, but it was, that mountain was, you know, has, was kind of came together like this, right? Kind of like has a narrow little top. And so very few people can kind of be at the top at the same time. Maybe just one person can be up there at the same time. So we have made all this struggle, you know, it's a lot of work to go up a mountain. And so we kind of huff and puff and get tired out and we slip down, we start over again, you know, and we have to, a lot of effort. It's like going against gravity. So that's one image that we have. The, as far as I know, the Buddha never used that image. But the image that Buddha used was uh, not climbing a mountain, but flowing down a river. He said, once you, once you can, kind of en- can uh, begin to let yourself enter into the present moment and rest in the present moment, the present moment, and, and accord with nature, let, let the present moment unfold by itself, enter the stream. Um, it's kind of like you're in a, in, in a stream, and the stream flows down and flows into a river, and the river flows down, and eventually, at least in India, uh, all rivers end up in the ocean. And uh, um, at least that's how the Buddha understood it. 
end up in the ocean. And so we're in the stream of the Dharma, stream of practice. And, and it's not fighting up a mountain and struggling so much, but it's finding a place to rest in, in the stream. And, with an, and then we actually find ourselves being carried along beautifully uh, into the ocean. And the ocean is so big, it can hold all of us. Isn't that nice? You know, it's not like, you know, you're going to be the king of the mountain. Uh, you're just going to, we're all going to be, you know, brothers and sisters in this great ocean of the Dharma when it all comes to, uh, to what it's going to be. So what does it mean? How do we practice to be in accord with nature? What does that mean? A lot of it means to start paying attention, to be a naturalist, to start studying nature. Part of being in accord with nature is to study nature. Uh, uh, not to rush to conclusions and rush to uh, ideas of what has to happen quickly, and, but rather, st- what's going on here? What's happening with me? What's happening in the situation? What is the nature? What is the truth of this particular situation? To study our lives, to study ourselves, um, to find out what is really deeply true, and to do it with as much care and, and compassion and gentleness as we can, uh, not to be in opposition with it. Um, and many of us are struggling and are in, uh, in opposition with ourselves and in opposition with the world around us and struggling. And then to be in accord with nature is to, um, to somehow try to uh, be gentle and, and uh, compassionate to these painful tendencies that we have. Uh, not, to be, not to hear the instruction that now you're supposed to be in accord with nature and whenever you're not, therefore you, you blew it. Um, that the, the practice, the instruction is Really notice where you are. If you notice something which is not in accord with nature, make lots of space for that and study it, get to know it. A lot of things um, uh, will unfold and reveal themselves and, and transform themselves simply under the, the, the gaze of mindfulness. It's kind of like mindfulness is like a light and, um, and like sunlight. And the plants grow in the sunlight. And, uh, and if there's no light there, then plants don't grow. But maybe, you know, if, they, if, they, if in the greenhouse if there's no light, then maybe uh, mold and algae grow and things begin to die. Um, in our own inner life, it's very much like that. That the light of awareness really, it's magical, it's really amazing, but the light of awareness really lets grow within us our wholesome qualities, the wholesome tendencies, the wholesome uh, mental factors within us. Wisdom, generosity, joy, love, um, friendship, compassion, all these things grow in the light of just paying attention. Um, and when we don't pay attention, the lack of attention feeds anger, it, feel, it feeds greed, it feels, feeds lust, it feeds confusion, it feeds, um, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the very painful tendencies within us. Uh, are fed by ignorance, fed by lack of uh, seeing them clearly for what they are. So we have the example of the Buddha, and I'm very inspired by the Buddha's example of how he, how he discovered the path of practice. And I wanted to relate it to you tonight. It's said that the Buddha uh, was inspired to practice because he encountered suffering, and he wanted to find some way of being in the world, some refuge, some some open way of being that um, was suffering-free. He wanted to find a solution to suffering that he saw around him and in him. And so first he engaged in the usual spiritual traditions of India of his time. 
And some of them had to do with using a tremendous amount of will, willpower, to force the mind into certain modes of being. And, uh, and again, for using willpower is not to be in accord with nature, is to force, force ourselves onto nature. Um, and then he did those as much as he could, and then he uh, went the other popular path of the time, and that was he did ascetic practice, maybe another front of willful practice, forcing the will. And he engaged in ascetic practice, said for some six years, many years, um, and he was said to be you know, the greatest ascetic of India of his time. He did it so well that people would pass him on the road and thought he was a corpse, see, that he died because he, he was so emaciated and so weak and so kind of, you know, nothing there hardly. And he was so good at it and he suffered a tremendous amount. Some of you might have seen the statue that's made of the Buddha as an ascetic. Um, you, you can see his, you can, he's so thin in the statues, you can see all his ribs and you can see his spine through his stomach. He's so emaciated. And he tried that and he realized, you know, I'm doing this better than anyone else. And if I did it any better, I would die. And, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, that's not going to do anyone any good. So this doesn't seem to be the way to do it. So, so he was somewhat, you know, maybe discouraged or kind of wondering what to do. And there was no, no example around him. He tried the spiritual paths of his time and he, didn't f- he found them wanting. They didn't really provide the, the, the freedom from suffering he was looking for. So the amazing thing that happened was then he remembered an experience from when he, 30 years earlier, perhaps, when he was uh, a young six-year-old. I think he was about 35 or 36 at this time. And he remembered uh, when he was six, his father was a local kind of uh, chieftain of this local tribe or local republic or little kind of uh, hill, hill, Himalaya foothill um, province. Uh, he was a king. And, uh, and part of his father's responsibility was to officiate over the ceremony of the first uh, uh, plowing of the spring. Uh, agricultural community and plowing and sowing the first seeds was kind of a big ceremonial thing. So his father was out in the field with the royal you know, plow, probably was you know, gold and great stallion and whatever, and they were plowing with the, with the festival. And, and in, in all this excitement of the f- ceremony, uh, the young six-year-old was kind of forgotten, left on the side of the field underneath a rose apple tree, it said, in the shade of the rose apple tree. And you can maybe imagine a nice spring day, uh, comfortable temperature, not too hot, not too cool in the shade. And it said the Buddha just was sitting there, sitting upright in this kind of posture. And um, he kind of just was content with himself. Maybe he closed his eyes and there was nothing he had to do or become. He didn't have to be... He was, you know, he, w- he was too young to think I have to kind of get trained to be the next king or, you know, or pass that exam or, um, you know, there was no ambition or desire to be anything different. Uh, he, was, he was a six-year-old, content in just being alive. Being alive was enough. And he just sat there, content in just being alive, not trying to change himself, not trying to resist anything or be different than who he was and just being there. And he remembered that in doing that, he settled into, he kind of c- came home to himself. He felt at home with himself. And he settled into a deep, embodied feeling of joy, a feeling of being in the body, settled in the body, content in the body, uh, and feeling a joy of just being present here in this body without trying to do any, trying to manipulate or change or become anything at all. And some children uh, have this experience, 
um, uh, and it can be very useful. Uh, I, I remembered, uh, I, I grew up partly in Italy, and when I was about uh, 10 or so, and I used to take the public bus to school and back every day. And on the way home from school, they had two, they had the, condu- they had the driver and the conductor who would stand in the back of the bus and sell the tickets. And uh, I lived near the end of the bus route. And when it got close to the end, the conductor would come to the front of the bus and he would do this complicated tallying of all the tickets he'd sold that last trip. Like how many adult fares and children's fares and how many senior citizen fares and how many partway fares and how many round trip fares. And he had this whole kind of ledger that he was entering this stuff into. And um, I would always sit right behind where he was going to sit. And I would watch him uh, do his ledgers. And somehow, maybe I was sharing his concentration or something, but I, I just was totally, I get totally absorbed in just watching him do this, you know, his work. And I felt this tremendous uh, embodied sense of being at peace in the world, uh, just watching him do the simple thing. Uh, and I was kind of, uh, I don't know if I was addicted to it, but I was really drawn to this experience. So I would always sit in the same seat waiting for him to sit in front of me so I could watch. Um, uh, so I could watch and have this experience of being just being at peace with myself. So the Buddha remembered some experience like that and, um, and said, well, maybe that's the way to go. And, but first he, kind of, well, first he said, well, actually, he felt a little bit afraid of doing that. He said, you know, and I don't know exactly why he felt afraid, but feeling at home in my body, feeling opening to my bodily experience, and maybe even feeling some joy and just allowing myself to be as I am and not trying to make a change and force a change and um, just kind of... That can't be the path, and maybe it can be a little bit frightening, this kind of instruction. Um, and maybe some of you are a little bit disturbed when you hear that kind of instruction. And so you're in good company, uh, because the Buddha also felt some fear around it. But he said, well, I'll try it, and maybe this is the way f- uh, to, to, to practice. And so then he tried that, and, um, and he decided to sit then on that, faith, that important night under the Bodhi tree in this new way of meditating, this new way of being. Um, and I call this uh, way of being, since it kind of re- the reference is how he was as a six-year-old, I kind of sitting, sitting with a childlike openness, just to be open to life like, a ch- like some kind of innocent, kind of our ideal kind of childlike openness, the way children can be sometimes. <laughs> but to sit with childlike openness um, to whatever is there, whatever is happening, allowing himself to be as he is, and to allow that joy, that joy of being embodied, maybe to begin showing itself and showing its face likely. But then the amazing, and maybe not, but maybe not surprising thing that happened, that when he sat down with that childlike openness that he'd never, never sat down with before, allowing himself to be as he was, to be in accord with nature, the momentum of his life caught up to him. And it takes the form, at least in the myth, of the visitations by Mara. And Mara is very much understood often by the tradition to be a personification of inner psychic forces that are coming up. And you can imagine someone, especially someone who's been an ascetic for six years and denied himself all kinds of things, you can imagine maybe what's kind of lurking kind of in in the background is ready to kind of come at full force, you know, sexuality and desire and food and movies and... (laughs) company of friends and 
you know, whatever, you know, all this stuff, you know, the temptations and desire and all kinds of things and can arise. Uh, and they rose with tremendous force. And that's part of what happens when we, it sounds kind of ideal and pastoral to sit there with childlike openness, like some kid in the, in the edge of some nice field on a spring day. Sounds great, you know, thanks. But, um, but what he coupled it with was uh, what he yoked it or connected with that childlike openness with was an adult-like resolve to sit still in the midst of it. And I think these are the two kind of keys to, uh, uh, to practice, is um, to a practice which is in accord with nature, is to sit with a tremendous adult, uh, uh, tremendous childlike openness, come what may. Let me, let me just be open to who I am in the present moment. Let me fa- come back to the present and let the present be what it is and find how to be as open as I can to it, not trying to change it or needing it to be anything different. Let there come all the pains of the body and all the pains of, of the soul. Let there come all the joys and delights. Maybe he was a little bit afraid of those joys. Let there come all the joys and delights that come with being an embodied person, being at home with oneself. Let them come and let me just keep my childlike openness to them. Let me not resist them. Let me not cling to them. Let me not hold on to them. Let me not judge them or interpret them or assign meaning to them. This means that I'm the best meditator ever who showed up at Spirit Rock or this must mean that I'm the worst meditator who ever showed up at Spirit Rock or you know, they'll never let me come back. You know, they only knew what was going on in my mind. In my mind, you know. It's said in our tradition that the mind has no shame. It's just amazing. It's just amazing what this display of the mind. And so it's um, just amazing. The, um, still amazing after all these years. It's, Blessed are those who can laugh at themselves because then they'll never stop being humored. <laughs> so we sit here and, and it's childlike openness, come what may. But he sat there with this adult-like resolve not to move, not to, not to kind of go forward or backwards. Just sit there. That, so those two together are really what are needed. Uh, and not one more than the other, uh, but just but kind of balance together to sit there. And the posture, this posture, you know, that the Buddha takes and that uh, Kuan Yin Avalokiteshvara takes up there, in, in, at least in a kind of archetypical way, kind of represents to me uh, that balance of these two forces. And it doesn't require any particular posture, but uh, the archetype of this posture is that balance of openness. You know, the chest is open, and present, and not caved in, but open like this. And, but then the spine or the rootedness of the sitting bones in their seat um, is this resolve to kind of, adult-like resolve to stay present for what, what's here. So Mara came with all his or her forces and, you know, all the temptations that you can imagine. And, uh, and the Buddha just sat there. It said that Mara came with armies of soldiers and ferocious animals and threw spears and swords at the Buddha and 100,000 swords and 100,000 spears and 100,000 arrows came flying through the air to attack the Buddha. And he sat there unmoved by it all, unafraid of it all, with his adult-like resolve, open for it all. And, and, and as it approached him, all the weapons turned into flowers that fell, flower petals fell all around him. Well, 
it's a nice idea. And maybe, it's, maybe it is like that way somehow, because there's this wonderful way in which nature, I think, will, 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 will often transform things remarkably if we trust nature and allow ourselves to be open to let things come as they wish. And you might find in your own way that things turn into flowers. Uh, what you're most afraid of. Um, if you just uh, learn to be open to it and love it, what you're most afraid of uh, is just a kind of flower that's been misunderstood, maybe. So um, what was interesting around the story about the, is that the Buddha could keep that up, keep the adult-like resolve, the childlike openness, for everything except for one thing. And that one thing was doubt. Mara came to him and said, Who are you to get enlightened? Who are you to become really free of all your suffering? Who are you to be happy? Who are you? You, know, are you, you don't have a right to this. You're not good enough. You know, you know just, you're just some, from a hill tribe in the Himalayas. You know, who are you to get enlightened? You, know, you should come from the great great cities, the great kingdoms of central India and be a king there, then maybe we can talk about enlightenment. But who are you? Some little, you know, guy in the hill, tri- hill tribes and, or whatever, you know, doubt came up, you know, you're not good enough. You know, you can imagine, that, you know, it's pretty, pretty common for people at some point to have some kind of feeling like this, feeling of adequacy, not worthy enough, not good enough. And what's it's in, in, instructive that the Buddha, this is where the Buddha's adult-like resolve and childlike openness wasn't enough anymore. He couldn't really handle it, that kind of self-doubt, deep self-doubt that he wasn't good enough, didn't have the right. And what he did was at that time, that moment when he was, was prevailed by that force of Mara, was he called upon nature to affirm his right to become free. And it's said that at this time, like the statue here shows, he took his right hand and lowered it down and touched the earth the Mother Earth, the Goddess Earth. And for me, that represents nature. And he touched it, and he let nature bear witness that he had every right to proceed and move forward beyond the doubt into the, into, into the unknown of freedom, into the unknown, of just allowing himself totally to become nature itself. And I like it very much that he touched nature, touched the Earth. Because in part, what it is, it's reaffirming or reconnecting and being reminded that we are nature. That's who we are. We're not separate from nature. We're not distinct from nature. We're nature touching nature. We're nature looking at nature. We're nature that's crying. We're nature that's laughing. We're nature that's thinking. We're nature looking at nature. We are nature. And so much of this point zero 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 one percent that's so, you know, responsible for most of our suffering, is in part a, a, a loss of perspective and loss of understanding of our na- our, really our nature, that we really are nature itself, and that there's, there's m- much, much, much more right and wonderful and precious about ourselves than we can probably possibly imagine. Um, so he touched nature, and that, and that reminder of who he actually was, was what relaxed the doubt, relaxed the the sense of maybe unworthiness for this task. And that's what allowed him then to move into that unknown and moved into that freedom where all his, um, 
clingings, all his aversions, all his fears uh, could dissipate and he could sit there and, uh, and see deeply uh, nature as it is in and of itself. Um, so the nature, to be in accord with nature, to let your practice as you practice here, um, to discover by investigation, by study, um, by not forcing change, by not imposing change, but really to understanding what you really most need to practice, to sit with childlike openness and adult-like resolve, or if that's not appropriate, to really be honest with yourself. Like, what do I really need? What's really going on with me? What is the way that's more like water that finds its way and less like a jackhammer that forcing ourselves to be a certain way? Um, what is the way that allows me to keep opening up, allows me to keep being mindful, allows me to be more compassionate for myself and find a way and continue, continue the process, to, to move the process, not to stop and interrupt it, but to allow myself to relax more deeply, if that's what's needed, to allow myself to look more carefully, allow myself to sit with more resolve, if that's what's needed, not to force change, but just to take that adult-like posture that we all have the ability to do. Um, but to find out what we need to do and then find, find how to go with that. Maybe what you, don't, you need is not to... Not to um, go to the next sitting. Maybe what you need is to go for a walk. That's what's most in accord. Or maybe going for the walk is just an escape. And uh, it's actually going, it goes against nature. It's kind of dishonest to actually go for a walk and, and kind of make that kind of temporary fix rather than really staying present for what's happening. It varies so much on the situation. And you're the only real authority for deciding what it is, how your practice should proceed and how you yourself can accord with nature, with truth. Honesty is a synonym for mindfulness practice. And what we're trying to do here in being mindful is to try to be completely honest through and through, inside and out, with who we are. And that honesty, I hope, will make you a more genuinely compassionate, caring, kinder, um, um, and stronger person. Your strength comes from being in accord with nature. Your strength comes from the truth itself. So, no moment of mindfulness is ever wasted. So, it's been a short retreat, but it's not wasted. And it's not over yet. So, this is only the first day of the retreat. So, Carry on, <laughs> and um, please enjoy the, your time here, and and uh, and uh, treat treat the next uh, hours before you go to sleep, and maybe you want to sit up later if you're inspired. It's rare to be here. Maybe you want to get up early in the morning, or maybe not. Um, but treat these next hours of the continue in the silence, and try, try to be uh, treat this as a kind of a very precious. Very precious opportunity, and um, and uh, you'll find that, that uh, it's not wasted time. So let's take just a moment to sit quietly. <laughs> <laughs>